All right. Hey, Madison. Hi, Mr. Chen. <laughs> you threw me off because I thought you might say Curtis since you're an adult now. <laughs> I know, but it just it doesn't work that way in my brain. Yeah, I know. I know. So, hey, I recorded with someone that you kind of know. Kind of know. I grew up with her books. I know, right? I, I remember in elementary school going to the library and the librarian would read her books out loud to us. Yeah, I mean, how cool is that, right? Like, I, when I grew up, there really wasn't anything. <laughs> there was, you know, Tiki Tiki Tembo or, you know, the five Chinese brothers, like all these bad ones. Uh -huh. And so the fact that you grew up, I think your whole generation grew up having Grace's books and others. But especially Grace, I think we're talking about Grace Lynn. She wrote The Ugly Vegetables and like 20 other books. Oh, but, it's Where the Mountain Meets the Moon. That one was mm, that we all read. And the covers are even so beautiful. I think I also read Dim Sum for Everyone when I was like little. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's really fun. No, I think for a generation of kids, especially Asian American kids, she was it, man. She was like the children's book author that you guys grew up with. And you know what's kind of interesting, and it'll, it'll come out in the talk, is that she didn't even really appreciate her Asian roots as a kid. Mm -hmm. And so that's a lot of her mission and her vision of doing this is because she never had an appreciation for her culture. She's she's still learning it, and she's still enjoying sharing it with others. You know, a lot of us ABC kids, you know, we're kind of maybe subconsciously trying to put down our Chinese culture a little bit so that we can blend in with mainstream a little bit. But she was kind of like, you know what? Kids need to have something to read and something to look at that affirms and, and showcases their culture. Yeah, definitely. That's really special, though. Yeah, so we had a good chat. Uh, she's The reason I wanted to rush this episode, like by the time I contacted her like a week ago, and then we recorded on Thursday, and then I'm going to try to put this out by Tuesday because she's coming to San Francisco. Oh, my goodness. I know, and Oakland and Berkeley and Seattle and Pasadena. Are you going to stop by and say hi? Are you going to stop by and say hi? I would actually love to. Unfortunately, I can't make that, but that's... Give her my hello, please. Okay, I definitely will. Oh, actually, I didn't even mention her book. Yeah, she's she's coming to San Francisco to promote her new book, which is called Chinese Menu. Mm -hmm. And it's a cool look at, she calls it American Chinese food. Because it's a lot of these dishes are not truly like, quote unquote, authentic Chinese dishes. But they're dishes that most of us love and grew up with. And there's stories behind them and how they... They got created, and a lot of them are based on Chinese dishes, but they have kind of an American flair. So she tells like these legends and myths, and she she makes them into stories as well, as well as giving us the history. And so it's really really cool book. So we're going to talk about the book, and it's coming out available now. By the time you're listening to this, you can get this pretty much anywhere. Chinese menu. Can you can you give an example of a food? Yeah. So she. Well, she did, you know, like sweet and sour pork, broccoli beef, Kung Pao chicken, you know, all the classic dishes. And she even does, has a whole section on rice, a check mm -hmm. section on chopsticks. That's really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And then she weaves in like, then she takes the legends and the myths and then she makes it into stories as well. Mm -hmm. That was so, my favorite part. Yeah, I, when I'm done with it, I will send it your way and you can read it with your college buddies. Awesome. <laughs> All right, should we get into the episode? 
Yeah. All right. So thank you, Madison, for doing the intro with me and everyone out there. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. And thanks for letting me come back. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. How's it going? Welcome back to the Infatuation Podcast. We could not be more excited to be speaking with a real legend today, I think, in our community. Uh, If you have kids, if you've had kids in the last 20 years, I think you've probably seen one of our guest books uh, come across your your lap before. Uh, She is an Asian-American author and illustrator, and she is won award after award, uh, Newberry's, Caldecott's, Dr. Seuss Awards. It is with great pleasure that we welcome Grace Lynn. Hey, Grace. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's our honor. And uh, we like to greet our guests, and I think this is very appropriate for our topic today. We like to greet our guests in the Asian way. So, uh, Grace, have you eaten yet? Chafalama. <laughs> I have eaten. I just finished eating, actually, right before I talked to you. So, thank you. I, though it wasn't like something exciting. It was just a salad. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, you know, but I, I'm glad you have something in your tummy. I don't want you to be thinking too much about food as we talk about food a lot today. <laughs> Uh, and where are you calling from? Are you calling from Massachusetts today? Yes, from Western Massachusetts, right near Smith College. Oh, okay. Are you in that giant heat wave that's hitting the East Coast? Yes, it's really hot. It's uh, supposed to break tomorrow night. I hope it. I hope it breaks sooner because it's very hot. Yeah. Well, the good news is I, I hear you're coming out our way, and I'm in San Francisco, and it is. It's like sixty, sixty-seven right now over where we live. So you'll nice. like that. <laughs> Bring a jacket, though. It gets chilly. It gets chilly at night. Really? Okay. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk more about the tour. You're going to hit a couple. You're going to hit the West Coast pretty hard. You're going to go Seattle and Oakland and San Francisco. We'll mention those dates. I'm going to try to drop this on September 11th so people have a chance to go see you. So we'll get this out right before you hit our town. That'd be great. Thanks so much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, listeners out there, if you, if you hit... San Francisco Omnivore Books when Grace is there. Who knows? You might be able to see me and I, I might have an infatuation sticker for you if you bump into me. Oh, I want one too. <laughs> Absolutely. No, you, you for sure get one. Uh, so let's see. Let's get into what we're talking about today. We usually uh, ask our guests a little bit about their roots. And from what I know, you, you come from a Taiwanese American background? Yes. Uh, my Both of my parents are from Taiwan, but I was born here in the United States. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And uh, was there... Any hint when you're a little kid that Grace Lynn or, or Pacey Lynn would become a children's book author? Was there any hint of that as a kid? Were you a doodler? Were you a creative storyteller? I think yes, definitely, because I always loved making books. Whenever there was a school project, I always made a book. I remember, I think in fifth grade, we were studying the Vikings, and uh, my good friend Jill made a Viking helmet, and my uh-huh. other friend uh, Charlotte made like a boat, but I made a book about the Vikings uh-huh. because I just thought <laughs> making books was so much fun. Uh, so as soon as I found out that it, uh, making books could actually be a job, um, I knew that's what I wanted to be. So I, I kind of knew fairly early actually yeah do do you remember any books that really left a mark on you when you're a little kid 
Oh, I think there's like so many that um, oh. it's hard to, to uh, it would be hard. It would take up all the time that we have. But uh-huh, I'll just uh-huh. name the two that came that just came to me. Um, when uh, in terms of picture books, the one that I really loved was called "The Little House" by uh, Virginia Lee Burton, and it was about this house mm. that um, there was the, that was in the in the country, but slowly the country turned into the city, and it was very unhappy until mm. one day someone saw the little house all broken down and took it back out into the country. So uh, that was uh, a picture book. And then another one that just popped into my head was uh, the um, Anna Green Gables series, which is uh, uh, for older uh, older kids. But like, I, I love that series so much. I would read that over yeah. and over again. Yeah, so magical. That's in Canada, right? Where does that take place? Yeah, it's and, like Prince Anna Edward Green Gables, Island. Prince Edward Island, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's interesting. And I said that... Um, those are just two off the top of my head, but like already I'm thinking like, I could name a dozen more. Uh, and you know, it's, and it's kind of that reason why I make books for kids. Uh, cause when I think about the books that mean the most to me, I realized the books that those books are children's books, you know, and, uh, and I'm yeah. pretty sure that's why I make children's books a lot of people ask me are you ever gonna write a book for adults uh, like only for adults you know um and i'm always like i don't know maybe but right now i really love making books that kids can read because um i remember how much the books i read as a kid meant to me so it's the idea of being able to make a book that might mean that much to another kid is a real a real gift yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. And and it's happening. I can tell you for a fact, some of your books have really met, left a mark on people. So so you're, you're mission accomplished on you. For <laughs> uh, and so you went to design school, you went to Rhode Island School of Design. Uh, what was the plan when you went to there? When you went to the design school? What was you what were you thinking at that point? Yeah, so I went to the Rhode Island School of Design, basically to become a children's book illustrator, okay. uh, to the horror of my parents. <laughs> but <laughs> your um, doctor father, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the horror of all of my relatives. Uh, but, uh, but that is where Chris Van Allsburg went to school. He was, mm. um, you might, people probably know him. He's the author and illustrator of the Polar Express, the author and illustrator uh-huh. of Jumanji. Yeah. And so, um, I wanted to be just like him and make uh-huh. books just like him. So that's why I decided to go to, um, the RISD, we call it, Rhode Island School of Design. Uh-huh, and, uh, uh-huh. I meant to be mainly an illustrator, uh, but when I graduated from RISD, um, well, at RISD, I had a whole change of, of path. Um, I still wanted to be an author and an, il- uh, I still want to be an illustrator, but before I, went to RISD, I thought the kind of illustrator I wanted to be was kind of like someone who illustrated Sleeping Beauty and uh, uh, Cinderella and those kinds of books. Um, yeah. And it was actually at RISD where I started realizing the importance of my own heritage. Um, and I started to value that so much more than I ever had before. And so when I left RISD, I realized uh, the type of book or the content that I wanted my books to have uh, was very, very different. And so that's kind of what pushed me on the trajectory that I am now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I- I'm a little older than you. And so I, I know for my my childhood, we didn't see a whole lot of people that looked like this in children's books. No. You know? and, if, and if they were, they were, dr- they were drawn or, or written by an outsider. You know, like I can think of 
I, now, I didn't read this as a kid. I saw this more recently. Is Moi Moi by Leo Politi. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. That's not bad, but it's quite old. <laughs> yeah, it's, 1960. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not as... Um, is not done as insensitively as, say, like the five Chinese brothers, which is right. very insensitive. Or Ricky Dicky Tambo. <laughs> <Yeah. or, yeah. laughs> like, there was a real, there was a real intention to be more sensitive <laughs> in Moi Moi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and, and it was done, you could tell it was done with respect and honor. It just, you know, he's mixing up dialects. Yes. <laughs> he's mixing up a bunch <laughs> of stuff. He's trying. He tried. He tried. But yeah, other than that, you know, and the, and the couple books that you just mentioned, it wasn't super favorable. So was it pretty clear at that point after graduating, if you were going to write children's books, you were going to do it about your family and your culture? Well, I mean, uh, that oh, actually, that was part of the story I got sidetracked on. But um, I started as an illustrator and I um, would always submit illustrations of me as a child, my family. Um, and I did not get any interest from any, <laughs> any uh-huh. publishing places, uh, for years and years until finally, um, one editor said to me, you know, you've been sending your samples to me for years. I actually really love your work, but I've never, I don't have any manuscripts to go with your stories because uh-huh. no one was writing Asian stories at that point. And if yeah. they were writing Asian stories, uh, they weren't, agents weren't sending them because they didn't think that they were profitable or, you know, like they didn't think that there was a space for them. And honestly, there was not really that much space for them anyway, but, um, but nobody was doing, not nobody, very few people were using, taking the space that was available. So, um, that is why I started actually writing is because I, had to write in order to illustrate what I wanted to illustrate. Because <laughs> no, no one else is going to write it for Yeah, you. exactly. No yeah. one else is going to write stories with uh, with Asians or Asian Americans in them. Yeah. Um, and so that's when I started writing. And slowly over time, I started falling in love with the writing as well. And now most people actually know me more as an author than an illustrator, which is so interesting. Yeah, that is true. But uh, we'll talk about your art in a second, but I think you started with The Ugly Vegetables, and that was kind of how I found you, too. It was uh, my oldest daughter was probably two, so this was 10, 10, 11 years ago, and we were just like, you know what? We got to read to our kid. You know, all the doctors tell you, you got to read to your kids, so we're just trying to load up on, on picture books. And we went to this used bookstore, and popping out of the shelf was this little pink, you know, little pink and green book. Uh, paperback. It was just, you know, it was just a, a cute little book. And, and I looked at the cover and, and I don't know why it was so surprising to me. Well, maybe because there just wasn't anything else out there. But I remember thinking, wow, there's there's Asian people on this cover. And yes. there are, you know, there's Asian characters in this book. There are, there are Chinese words in this book. And the story is, is well, for the audience out there who don't know, The Ugly Vegetables, uh, 1999, am I getting the year right on yes. that? Uh, it was a story about a daughter and a mother. I'm presuming it's a little autobiographical. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> uh, a mother and a daughter, and they're planting in the garden. And the daughter is like, why Why do we not plant flowers? Everyone else is planting flowers. And we're planting these what look like ugly vines. And, you know, they're just coming out. And the mom explains to you that, no, this is better than flowers. And then eventually melons grow and vegetables grow and your and your mom makes this this aromatic soup that the, the whole neighborhood comes to see. And, and it just really, 
it's a simple story, you know, but it's told genuinely and it's told in a way that um, just hits a nerve with so many people. I'm sure you get this all the time. It doesn't matter if you're Chinese or not. It's about anyone who's kind of been othered and been asked, you know, why doesn't your hair look like my hair? Or why doesn't your, why aren't your eyes the shape of my eyes? Or, or why does your lunch smell the way it does? It's like anyone who's ever had that experience of feeling different, I think it's so important for someone to say, look, different can be better. And a lot of times it is better. And so uh, what, what led you to write this book? Was this a story that was kicking around in your head for, for years or just kind of came to you? Um, so what happened was that editor, who I mentioned, who sat me down and said, you know, uh, I've liked your work for years, but I can't find any stories to go with it. He's like, you know, uh, you just sent me this this postcard of your work. And it was um, it was a painting I'd done with me and my mother, um, me as a child and my mother in our garden. And he's like, I really like this picture. Um, he's but do you have a story that goes with this picture? And this had been it's been about three years now that I have been kind of like hitting my head against the wall trying to get published. And I said, Yes, I do. <laughs> and even uh, though I didn't, and he's like, great, uh, send it along. And uh-huh. so uh, I went home, I looked at the picture, and I was like, okay, this is me and my mom. Uh, this is when she grew Chinese vegetables in the garden. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I was really embarrassed because everybody else grew flowers. And so uh, that was kind of a story. So I wrote it. Um, uh, we went back and forth. This was a quite a while ago, like ni- 1990. So, you know, 1999 is when it was published, but you know, right, it was before, right. before then that, um, that this whole process was happening. Sure. Um, and, uh, that, we went back and forth and we made that into my first published book. So, yeah, no, and it, it's amazing. So, if you haven't read it out there, <laughs> adults, you can read it too. It's a good read. <laughs> and uh, your art style on this one, you can tell, like, when you first look at it, you're kind of like, it looks a little 2D to me, you know, a little two dimensional. <laughs> and then, but then you start, I, I've read a little bit about your style and how it's based on kind of folk art, mm-hmm. maybe even paper cuttings yeah. or, you know, the scrolls that are on the wall. It's kind of like this different perspective. And, and it really, it, it just comes off the page at you in, in a little different, hits a little different than you might do if you're reading a Disney book, like you said, with Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. How did you develop your art style? Yeah. So, you know, the, it, I, I went to the Rodin School of Design, um, and it was a very, very traditional, um, traditional art education. So, um, but it was there that I kind of, like I said, I kind of learned, or I kind of realized what I was missing in terms of embracing my own heritage. And when I was there, um, you know, it's fascinating looking back at it now because uh, the Rhode Island School of Design is a very great, uh, very well-revered um, art school. And we learned everything about the Renaissance. We learned everything about Middle Ages. But, you know, we never learned that I could remember anything about, like, Asian art, you know? <laughs> like, and... So I actually kind of had to go by myself and look at all the age, look at Asian art on my own. And, um, the art that spoke to me and, and maybe because I looked at it on my own and I didn't have somebody guiding me, I was just kind of like, Oh, this looks nice. This looks nice. You know, <laughs> uh-huh. um, the art that spoke to me was the Asian folk art, like the Chinese peasant art. And the reason why it spoke to me so much was because it, reminded me so much of the work of Henry Matisse, who we did study in great detail, um, because they both embrace this really flat color, a lot of, a lot of, um, 
patterns. A lot of bright colors didn't care about his perspective. And I, it, I've said this before how like, um, you have these two artists on either side of the world. Like you have Henry Matisse on one side, you have these Chinese folk artists on the other side. Um, they probably do not know of each other's existence, uh-huh. Uh-huh. but, but there's something that connects the two. And I uh-huh. felt a lot of, um, kinship to that because yeah. I felt like I had this Eastern part and I had this Western part of myself that right. did not really know of each other's existence, <laughs> but there had to be something that connected the two. And that's where the, my art style kind of came from, from my first, you know, 20, 10, 10, 15 books is very flat, very colorful, a lot of patterns. Um, it's not the kind of art I know uh, people, sometimes people are uh, surprised that I went to art school when they see these books <laughs> because it's a very, um, it was very childlike. Uh, it's Homey, purposely yeah. so, purposely so, but I think, uh, I think most people who have studied the arts understand how it's deceptively, um, childlike, but, um, uh, but that is the in- inspiration or how I came up or why I worked the way I did for the first many of my books. Yeah, love it. And let's, let's speak about those. You've written over 20 books in the last 20 years. So <laughs> over a book a year. Grace, what are you doing over there? You're busy. <laughs> Uh, and you've done everything from board books for babies to middle readers. You did a, a biography, Maya Lin, and you've done a prequel to Mulan. So you get to do your Disney. You did a little Disney. Uh, what's the best part of your work? If you had to, if you had to say your favorite part of the process. Um, you know, it's funny because I often get asked, what do you like better, writing or illustrating, writing or illustrating? And <laughs> The truth is, I don't really like either. <laughs> like, I'm like I, I don't really like doing either. What I really like is sharing stories. Right? Mm. I love sharing stories. And uh, writing or illustrating is just my vehicle to share stories. So what I really love is um, having people read the stories, having kids read the stories, uh, sharing the books with kids, having the books being shared. Like it's, it's really about that end connection more. Um, so it's a really interesting thing when people, I, I, I try not to say that to kids when they're like, what do you like better? I'm like, don't like any, <laughs> I hate it all. <laughs> but I do like it when you get to read the book and I do like it yeah. when the stories are shared. That does make sense. That does make sense. Now, I couldn't help, help but notice, but a lot of your titles in the last 20 years have been about food. <laughs> you had, of course, The Ugly Vegetables, The Big Moon Cake for a Little Star, Fortune Cookie Fortunes, Dim Sum for Everyone. Yes. So I'm, I'm starting to put the pieces together here a little <laughs> bit. Have you been wanting to write ch- Chinese menu for the last 20 years or has, has the idea been in there? Yeah, very, very long. I've been wanting to write Chinese menu. Um, I think... I've ever since 2004 when I did Fortune Cookie Fortunes. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I put this in the author's note of the book, um, where when I wrote and illustrated Fortune Cookie Fortunes, which is a picture book, um, that's when I found out that the, in, that the fortune cookie is a completely Asian American invention, but <laughs> yeah. no one in China knows what the fortune cookie is. Or if they do know, they're like, oh, that American cookie. Because they traveled here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like when I, back then, I think most people know that now, but back then in 2004, I think it wasn't as commonly known. And so when I would tell this to people, 
um, almost everybody would say, oh, so the fortune cookie is not even really Chinese. And they would yeah, say that yeah. with such like... <laughs> Disdain. Yeah, <laughs> such disgust, right? And that yeah. would really bother me because as probably your listeners have gleamed from my conversation that uh, like I had a very, very um, uncomfortable relationship with my own racial identity for a long time. And so mm -hmm. I could see how people could say that about me very easily. Like, oh, she's not really Chinese. She's not really, right, you know, right. so anything. And, um, and so ever since then, I've always wanted to do something, a book that gave this food. So I consider the food in this book to be American Chinese food. So it's like yeah. this food is just as American as like hot dogs or pizza uh -huh. or, right. or hamburgers, <laughs> but it does have Asian roots. And so the whole purpose of this book is that I kind of want people to read this book and have more respect for this American food with Asian roots. Uh, mm -hmm. And also by doing so, hopefully have more respect for their fellow Americans who also have Asian roots. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Let me let me describe the book a little bit to people. Uh, Chinese Menu is a collection of about 40 stories uh, about legends and tales behind your favorite American Chinese food. Almost 300 pages long. It's heavy. It's a, it's a big tome. Uh, it's organized by sections, kind of like a menu. In fact, if you look underneath the dust jacket, you'll see the cover of it looks like a Chinese menu. It's the red with the little gold on the outside. Uh, it's part history lesson. It's part tales. It's part myths. It's a storybook all in one. Uh, I think I've heard you say this, but who who's this book intended for? Oh, well, I feel like it's intended for anyone who has ever eaten Chinese food. <laughs> yeah, right? Who could that be? <laughs> so um, I feel like it could be for uh, kindergartners, if adults read it to them, you know, because it's for like short stories. It could be for elementary school. It could be for high school. It could be for adults. I feel like it could be for anyone. That said, um, my publisher has said it's for ages eight and up. I know people really want to know, like, what is it? So yeah. they've said it's for ages eight and up. But I, I truly believe that it's for, like I said, anyone who's ever eaten Chinese food. Yeah, no, let me tell you, I, I've, I've enjoyed it. I've been, you know, my kids have asked to read it and I, I haven't let them have it yet. I've been reading it <laughs> lately, but I could see it's totally appropriate for little kids. The stories, the myths, the legends and the illustrations are there. So it's part picture book. And, but for those people who love food and those especially, especially Chinese food, it is great. Now we are dropping this episode around September 11th. So I think by then it should be pretty much available almost anywhere. Now, we, of course, are going to recommend you go to your local independent bookstore to get it. But you should definitely get a copy of this any way you can and work your way through it slowly. Read it to your kids. The, the art is amazing. It's a little different uh, than some of your earlier books, but it is, um, it's beautiful. Uh, how did you, how did you settle on how you wanted to write it? Did, were you at one point thinking it'd be mostly historical and a little bit of myth? Or did the, the storytelling always going to be part of it? Um, I think the storytelling was always going to be a part of it just because that's the way I I am. That's just the way I think. Uh, so yeah. all the way back in 2004, when I first came up with this idea, you know, I kind of had the idea and put it in the back of my head. But ever since then, I've been slowly kind of collecting stories. So like <laughs> my dad would tell a story and I kind of like scribble it down, you know, like I, somebody else would tell a story, I like scribble it down and uh, I'd yeah. see a bad translation of stories and where I like scribble it down. Uh, so I've been collecting these stories 
for quite a long time. Uh, though when we decided that we were really going to make this into a book, um, and actually what really pushed me was like, I found out that this book would be categorized as nonfiction. I was like, oh, <laughs> I was like, that's a lot of pressure. Uh, that's when um, I actually hired a research assistant as uh, a Chinese studies student at Smith College. Oh, wow. And um, I had, I told, I gave her the list of stories that I had. And I said, um, I need you to find at least, uh, I need you to find secondary sources for all of these stories, uh, just so I know that there's actually real roots <laughs> to, to some yeah. kind of mythology, some yeah. kind of like history, some kind of legend that it's not just something my dad made up like yeah. off the top of his head <laughs> that one night, you know? Yeah, and so, yeah. um, so she, she was great because, um, your listeners probably have gleamed, um, or, if they haven't, I will explain to them now. I pretty much rejected my heritage when I was younger. Um, and by rejecting it, I never learned how to speak Chinese. I never learned how to write or read Chinese. Uh, but my assistant could, and that was invaluable. Uh, so yeah. she really helped me make sure, um, everything was, um, had some kind of, had some kind of, non-fictionness to it <laughs> so uh, -huh. uh but it was amazing because she found not just two or three versions sometimes she'd find like six or seven different yeah. versions and i'd have to kind of squish them all together to make one story uh sometimes yeah. she would find stories that were just completely different than the one i had found and sometimes i would uh -huh. like hers better <laughs> and i would use her right, instead right. Yeah. so um so it was really uh, a great thing so uh, how did i choose them um I chose them. Um, it was a balance between what, what were the most interesting stories? What were the foods that, um, I thought people would recognize and would want to know about? For, uh -huh. um, for example, um, I wasn't sure if, I should have a tea section because my publisher was saying, Oh, we're going to make this for kids. And I'm like, kids aren't really interested in tea too much. But, uh -huh. but then I was like, but it's such an important part of Chinese cuisine. It seems weird not to have it. And I was like, uh -huh. Oh, maybe I'll just make a very slim section for tea. But um, the stories were just so great. And I remember reading one of the stories uh, to my daughter who was at the time she was in uh, uh, fifth grade. And she's like, I love that story. It's so amazing. And uh -huh. so, the, the fact that the stories were just so interesting and fascinating, um, kept them in the book. <laughs> and then yeah. on the other side, there were stories that, um, that maybe uh, th like beef and broccoli. It's not, it's not, it's still a very interesting story, but like I knew everybody would be interested in beef and broccoli because they've all had beef and right. broccoli, you know, yeah, like yeah. so. So it was more like, let's find a good beef and broccoli story. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. I love it because sometimes you'll even let the reader make a choice of what they want to believe, right? With, yeah. what was it, chopsticks? There's like three or four different myths yes. about where <laughs> chopsticks came from. And it's like, well, that one makes sense. And then you read the next one, you know, like, oh, that's that's even cooler. I like that one better, yeah. And you even have tips on like, you know, what not to do with chopsticks. <laughs> it's really a cool, it's really a cool thing. And so we're talking mostly about Chinese dishes that are, not necessarily originated in America. Sometimes they did, but they have roots in China, but maybe they just more Americanized or how would you describe it? These are dishes that... I would say that they're influenced. So a lot of these dishes are uh, born in China, but um, came here to the United States and were were modified or uh -huh. altered or grew. Maybe that's a better way. Or grew... Uh -huh. 
grew into something else, you know, uh, yeah, like it became yeah. a sprout of something else. <laughs> right, right. So these are these are all dishes that we probably had at one restaurant or another <laughs> and, and served across the country. Do you mind if we talk a little about a couple of these? Sure, no, yeah. I, I can choose a few or, or you can choose some that I, you want to talk to. Go ahead. <laughs> you choose and it'll put, keep me on my toes. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Let's see. Let, let's test your guys. All right. So uh, I don't think, I don't know if it's true around the country, but in San Francisco, there is no more popular type of restaurant to open right now than dumplings. Ah. Really? There, if if you if you look around the city, and actually, you know, hey, if you have time uh, when you come to town, let me know. We can take you out to some dumplings. Ooh, I'd but... love to. <laughs> <laughs> dumplings is one of my favorite foods. <laughs> How can it not be? I mean, who's who doesn't like dumplings? Well, you know, even vegetarians can find dumplings for them too. But uh, what can you tell us about the origin of dumplings? So. As you know, and as probably all your listeners know, there's many, many different kinds of dumplings. There's soup dumplings, there's all, there's the dumplings and dim sum, but the dumplings that most people here in the United States are familiar with are probably the ones that we might call pot stickers, right? Um, or, uh-huh. uh, we would call jiaozi. Um, so those dumplings, if you look very carefully, they look a lot like a person's ear. Uh-huh. And the reason why they look like a person's ear is because they were actually invented by an ancient Chinese doctor who invented them as a medicine to cure people's <laughs> frostbitten ears. Because okay. he was walking through the village one winter day and he saw all these villagers with like frostbitten ears. And he's like, oh, I should help them. So he went home, he made this dumpling and he filled it with um warming herbs and spices and meats and he thought if people ate these dumplings it would warm them from the inside and cure their frostbitten ears and so he made them ear shaped because he wanted people to remember what this medicine was for and he brought it and he's like this will cure your frostbitten ears eat them eat them (laughs) and everybody ate them I don't know if it cured anybody's husband ears, but they sure love them because we still Uh eat them to this day. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the little wrinkly curved things. (laughs) It's supposed to be someone's ear. (laughs) I don't know if I can eat them the same way anymore. I might have to think about that. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Next, um, we're going to keep it in San Francisco a little bit. Uh, This is a dish I don't know if I've ever had, but everyone knows it. It's chop soy. Oh, yeah. You know, it's really fallen out of favor. Like, you don't really see that on the rest- on yeah. restaurant menus too much anymore. Yeah. Because we've really kind of looked down on it now as, like, not really Chinese. Uh-huh. Like, but um, chop suey was a really, really important part of Chinese-American history. You know, um, it yeah. really was one of the things that kind of in some ways, uh, legitimize the Chinese population here in the United States. Um, at least if it didn't legitimize them, at least it gave them a foothold here, you know, because Mm -hmm. chop, everybody wanted to eat chop suey at one point or the other, (laughs) you know, like they thought it was like a huge, it was in the rage and to eat chop suey meant you were cultured and all these things. It was like a really, it was like a really, really important part of Chinese American history, like I said. So there's many different stories about chop suey. A lot of people said it's think it's not really Chinese. And uh, the reason why they think it's not really Chinese is because of the great myth that I'll share with you. Uh, but before I share this myth, there also is another side that says it is really Chinese, or at least it does really have Chinese roots. They think it might be what we call sapsui in a small town in southern China that uh-huh. might have come from there. 
which was like made with like animal entrails and things like that. So, <laughs> uh -huh. which under which understandably is why maybe the traditional recipe was not popular, <laughs> why it was altered here in the United States. Uh, so I do think I actually do believe it does have real roots in um, Chinese cuisine. Uh, however, the legend of chop suey goes like this: the legend goes that. When Chinese came here to the United States, they came during the gold rush, uh, thinking that they would come here to, to Gold Mountain and get gold, just like many, many other immigrants. However, when they got to California, there was no Gold Mountain and there was no gold. All the gold had been gone by then. And most of the immigrants did not even have enough money to go back, back to China. And so yeah. they had to yeah. eke out a living to survive here in the United States. And one way they eked out a living was to open up restaurants. Now, it's a very tenuous living uh, because being Chinese and very visually different than most of the Europeans that were immigrants there, um, they were often targets for violence and, and unsavory behavior. Sure, and yeah. so, uh, you know, they had to be really careful. So the story goes that one evening after a Chinese chef had closed his restaurant, a group of drunken miners banged on his door and they said, we're hungry, feed us. <laughs> now... Like I said, it was very dangerous for Chinese immigrants at that time. So the chef knew better than to not let them in. And he knew better than to anger them. So he says, okay, sure, come on in. I'll get you some food. And so they demanded to eat food right away. Like, we're hungry. Give us some food. And um, this Chinese chef ran to his kitchen to cook, him some, cook them something. And that's when he realized he didn't have any ingredients. He had used up everything that day. He was expecting a shipment of ingredients the next day, but there was nothing there now. And he was searching and searching, trying to figure out what he could feed this group of drunken miners. And he had nothing except for what was in his garbage pail. <laughs> so he took all the odd scraps out of his garbage pail. He stir fried them and served it to them. And they loved it. And they're like, what is this? Uh, like, well, I'm going to order it next time. And the Chinese chef, knowing that the these drunken miners would have no idea what he was saying, uh, he said, oh, it's called chop suey or chop suey which means odd scraps in his dialogue in uh -huh, his dialect uh -huh. so the idea being that chop suey really means odd scraps or really his garbage <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that was like his inside <laughs> joke that he can laugh at them for so um that is the legend most people most historians pretty much agree that it's not true um so <laughs> but it is a very interesting story yeah, yeah. And it's kind of interesting the history of it as it as it played out like you said in the 1940s and 50s if you were a Chinese restaurant if you didn't have chop suey, I mean that was like the marquee item on the menu. You yeah, had they called chop them chop suey houses, you know, like that was like a uh -huh. big thing like they'd marquee was like chop suey, you know, like in that yeah, terrible yeah, yeah. like fake right. font. <laughs> right, right. But uh fascinating. But yeah, I don't know if you can find many uh chop suey <laughs> Uh, items on menus these days, yeah. but yeah, maybe you gotta maybe you gotta travel a little to find one. Uh, and then uh, we don't have to get totally get into it, but uh, the last San Francisco one I have for you, and and I, I'll take your word for it. Where were fortune cookies invented? <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems the evidence is pretty strong that the fortune cookie was invented in San Francisco as yes. well as invented <laughs> by a Japanese-American. So I would say that the fortune cookie is a Japanese-American food invented in San Francisco. But, you know, I would say it's a, it's a 
I would say it's a 90, 90% chance that that's true, but there's, there's a slight 10% chance that it's LA and 10% chance that it's a, that it was a Chinese American invention, but odds are really, I wouldn't put money on, on the Chinese American invention or LA. Yeah, it's so weird, right? That you think of fortune cookies synonymous with Chinese restaurants. I know. Well, I mean, I think that is why, that's why it's most likely that it was uh, uh, invented in San Francisco because um, because the way that the popularity of the fortune cookie happened was because of World War II and all uh-huh. the soldiers leaving out of San Francisco and they would right. often go to a Chinese restaurant there and eat the fortune cookie. And so when they went back to their homes in New York and New Jersey, they'd ask for that fortune cookie and the, the, the New York and New Jersey Chinese restaurant like, okay, we'll get that, you know? So yeah, um, I yeah. think that that is what at least lends to the evidence that it was, uh, created in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Uh, and you can read more about this, of course, in the book Chinese Menu. But if you want to hear more of Grace's stories, you can just go to her Instagram. She does these one-minute myths, and she's gone through, <laughs> you got about 12 of them? You got yeah, a bunch of them yeah. up there. <laughs> yeah, so you can hear more of these stories and, of course, read the book yourself. But bravo, really, really great accomplishment on this book. I, I think it's it's definitely one that should be on everyone's shelf and eat, whether or not you have kids. Oh, <laughs> <Aw>, thanks. <laughs> sure, of course. Uh, let's see. And let's go ahead and talk a little bit about your upcoming tour. Again, uh, this episode should be September 11th. And so if you are in the San Francisco area, you can, well, if you're in Seattle, I think you're on the Seattle on the 11th. But then if you are in San Francisco on September 12th, you can go to Omnivore Books in San Francisco. If you are in Oakland on September 13th, you can go to the Oakland Asian Cultural Center. Uh, and then Berkeley Public Main Library uh, as partnership with Eastman Books in Berkeley on Thursday. And then Friday, you're down in Pasadena with this guy that we've done a show <laughs> on him before. His name is John Cho. Anybody ever heard of this guy? You know, Harold and Kumar. Uh, you're doing a little a little panel with John Cho about this book? Yeah, he's he's going to be in conversation with me about it because... Um, uh, when his book, the, when his book Troublemakers, ca- Troublemaker came out, uh, I was in conversation with him about his book. So I think he's, he's returning the favor uh. and he's going to be in conversation with me about my book. Also, I think he's probably, uh, he's probably a little bored because, you know, they're on strike. Right. <laughs> so that he's probably like, why not? <laughs> so that's at Roman's Bookstore in Pasadena on Friday, September 15th at 6 p.m. Uh, Pacific time. So, yeah, you can go see Grace with her pal, John Cho, talking about Chinese menu. So, wow. So everyone out there, go get a copy of the book. We'll tell you more about it in a second, how to get it. But, you, Grace, you have finished our difficult questions. Are you ready for our lightning round? Yes, I am ready. Okay. <laughs> Just go ahead, answer whatever comes to your mind on these. All right, question number one. What's your go-to order when you go to a Chinese restaurant? What do you like to get every time? Um, I like to get the mushu chicken or the mushu pork every time. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's not anything that my mom ever made. Um, so it is completely, to me, uh, a Chinese restaurant food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No I, I, no problem with that. Uh, and then a literary question for you. What are you, what are you reading right now? Uh, right now, I am reading. <laughs> you could tell my daughter is a 
between. I'm reading Untangled, ah. uh, which is all about like how to deal with girls going into adulthood. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a nonfiction book. <laughs> yeah, we've got tweens at my house too. So. <laughs> Yeah, okay, okay. A, a fiction book that's really beautiful um, is Hope in the Valley by Matali Perkins. Okay. It's, um, it's a middle grade book. So uh, that's another. So if you don't have a tween girl that you're trying to figure out, <laughs> read Hope in the Valley instead. <laughs> all right, great recommendation. And all right, you get to pick one of these. Uh, one of them you can have and the other one you cannot have for a whole year. Are you ready? Okay. Uh, noodles or rice? Oh, interesting. I would definitely choose noodles over rice. Uh And I know that's a little bit sacrilegious because, you know, we ate rice every day Uh uh at my home. And you would think that because of that, I would like love it and crave it. But honestly, I think I'm much more of a noodle person. I don't know why. (laughs) Maybe you're a northern. Yeah, I think noodles are a little more northern, maybe. Yes, (laughs) I think so. (laughs) All right. How about dim sum or soups? Oh, that's a tough one, but I think I would go with dim sum. Right, yeah. (laughs) Because you have a lot of variety there, too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Now, this is, I don't know if this is going to play. All right. You cannot have Chinese food for a year or you cannot read for a year. Which would be more important to you? That's tough. I would probably have to choose, um, I'd I'd probably choose the reading over the Chinese food, which is tough. It's tough. It's the core of your soul, right? (laughs) Yeah, but I have to choose the reading because I don't know what I would do. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas the Chinese food, I would, I I was like, I'll eat sushi. (laughs) You go Thai food. Yeah, you can kind of go around it. (laughs) You know, I'll just like keep going, like circling and circling. (laughs) (laughs) And then we like to end a program with our signature question. We like to ask our guests who their infatuation is. And infatuation is anyone in the Asian community, living or deceased, that has inspired you. It could be someone you know. It could be someone you admire from afar. So, Grace Lynn, who is your infatuation? Now, you know, this was a really hard question. I was thinking about it um, because you kind of cued me into this question at the beginning. Uh And I was like, uh, the first person that came to my mind was uh, Connie Chung. Oh, Because she was the only Only, Asian... Asian uh, woman I ever saw when I was a child that was on TV that Uh was uh, that was even close to who I kind of wanted to be like she was so she was Asian American she was Asian obviously but she spoke English perfectly she seemed accepted by you know like she's beautiful (laughs) yeah she seemed accepted by the mainstream she's like you know um, so she was yeah. She was probably um, my first infatuation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, her name hasn't come up, but yeah, when you think about it, for those of us who grew up in the 70s and 80s and 90s, there really weren't a whole lot. So. No, and she and the sad thing when I think about that is how she was really the only one. Like, you'd think that like, she broke a barrier and there would be more after her but there really wasn't and that's what's so sad um it's i mean no fault of hers obviously but it's just like so sad that like we had that one and they made her a unicorn instead of like letting her break through for others you know um so like my other infatuation was uh, that i was thinking was amy tan of course yeah Um, so because i know for a long time for the first like 15 uh, years of my children's book career, I was like, I want to be known as the Amy Tan of children's <laughs> books. You know, like, yeah. uh, that was kind of my goal. And, um, and the same thing for her though. Uh, I, I, 
so admire her and I love her book and her writing is amazing. But it's the same thing. I feel like she, it was, she became the Asian American writer, uh, that fulfilled that one yeah, spot. The quota. You know, the, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. the sad thing is like no other spots open, yeah. which I think is, um, which, is really sad mm -hmm. now. And I'm so, so grateful and glad that that's not the case so much anymore. I mean, we need, we need more, obviously, but it's yeah. not so much where it's like, okay, we've got one. That's enough for 20 years. Right. Decades. Yeah. <laughs> then you, when, when that person dies, maybe we'll get another one. <laughs> uh, well, you know, at least, at least we're seeing it in our lifetime, I think. Yeah. You know, and I think that's see. really wonderful. And I'm so glad to see that. But, and I'm grateful for both, both Amy Tan and Connie Chung for, for at least being there, at least being the one, you know? Yeah. Did you feel that way a little bit about yourself? I mean, in, in the children book space for um, a decade? Uh, you know, in the beginning, I did, um, and and I I kind of felt that way with resentment because mm. um, because honestly, I kind of felt like I was an imposter because, uh. as I said earlier, I really did not know that much about my own Asian heritage, and that's actually why uh. I do the books that I do. It's kind of trying to learn about my own Asian heritage, and so it was uh, it was something I kind of resented. I was like, people keep thinking I'm going to like represent them when I'm like, I'm just trying to learn myself. Uh -huh. uh, but slowly over time, uh, the resentment dropped away. And, and now I really see it as a, a badge of honor. And I'm really proud yeah. that um, I've been able to help fill this hole. And I'm yeah. so glad that there's so many others that to yeah, help. Yeah, yeah. So now there's not just one, you know, there's yeah. so many. <laughs> so it's great. I mean, you got the hardware to prove it to you. <laughs> you got the awards. <laughs> You know, you got you have a loyal fan base. They're so happy to to see you making this book. Uh, what's what's on tap for you? What what's what's in the works? Well, I'm really uh, promoting this book like heck because uh -huh. <laughs> I really believe in it, and I really really hope that it reaches as many readers as possible. Um, and then after that, I'm working on a novel, but um, it probably won't come out until like 2025 because I'm going to take a little break after yeah. <laughs> promoting this book. Yeah, yeah, no, it's <laughs> it's hard. I, I know that being an author is hard because you're kind of in charge of your own promotion in a lot of ways and you got to yeah. do a lot of the, the legwork yourself. But uh, but we're happy to happy to support you, everyone. You should go to the any of the book signings. I'll put the the dates and the locations in the show notes. You can also find out more if you go to Grace Lynn's website at gracelynn.com. You can see all the dates, and once in a while there's promotions, and you can see all of her other works there as well as well as read her biography, or you can follow Grace at Pacey Lynn on Instagram. That's P A C Y L I N on Instagram. Or you can listen to her podcast. She has her own podcast <laughs> with her friend Alvina. Uh, it's called Book Friends Forever, BFF. And it is fantastic. I really enjoyed listening to it. So. Oh, really? I was just about to say, like, it's kind of an industry podcast. We talk mainly about children's books. So I was like, I don't know if people will be that interested if they're not in children's books. But if they are in the industry, I think it'll be fascinating. No, I, I, <laughs> you know, I'm not in the industry, but I find, I find it interesting. And you have... Really? Okay. That's interesting. That's, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I definitely do. So everyone should go out there and listen to that podcast as well. You can 
find that wherever you get podcasts. Wherever you're listening to this, you can find Grace and Alvina's podcast as well. We want to shout out a special thanks to Little Brown Books for sending us the the author pack. That was great. And Carrie Bachman, thank you for uh, connecting me with Grace. So thank you to all of them. And everyone out there, thank you for listening. And if you have any feedback, you can write to me at infatuationpodcasts at gmail.com. Or you can follow uh, this little show at Infatuation Podcast over on Facebook or Instagram. So, hey, everyone out there, thank you for listening so much. And please follow us wherever you can. Uh, Let's see. So on behalf of Grace and myself, we hope that you're all happy, healthy, and safe out there. Uh, We'll talk to you again soon. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks so much. Bye.